Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First up, I want to mention that I recently saw the movie Fighting With My Family, which is, of course, based on the life story of Paige. And I have to say, this was surprisingly a really good movie. I admit I was actually pretty skeptical going in because, aside from The Wrestler, I don't think there are really any other good movies about wrestling in existence, and yes, I'm including Ready to Rumble in that conversation. But it really is a good movie, and I can tell you that because my wife, who pretty much just tolerates my love of wrestling, cried multiple times during the movie and raved about it to me afterward. So it's not just me saying that, folks. I also have backup from Henrietta Huge Pecs as well. Without going too much into it, yes, there are certain things that are fictionalized for the story, and I think they pretty much just included The Rock in the movie to give it more of a box office bump, but hey, so what? I mean, that's pretty much how any of these biopics go. I'm not going to nitpick all that stuff. Just judging the movie on its merits alone, I give it an easy thumbs up, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb to call it probably the best movie ever put out by WWE Studios. I know that's a low bar to clear, but still, the point stands, so go see Fighting With My Family if you haven't already. Also, I have to give a quick plug to a recent episode of the Nitromania podcast. The host, Adam, was nice enough to ask me to co-host the show, as well as Sal from the WrestleMania Salvation podcast. We ended up discussing Halloween Havoc 1996 and the following night's episode of Nitro for about three hours, so definitely be sure to listen to that one. I'll actually go ahead and put a link to it in the episode description for this podcast, so you can just click on over to it and enjoy. Great stuff there, as always. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, March 15th, 1999. Hey, the Ides of March! And we are live from San Jose Arena in San Jose, California. In the present day, the arena has been given the terrible name of the SAP Center at San Jose, but it's more affectionately referred to by its nickname, the Shark Tank, because the NHL's San Jose Sharks play their home games there. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 17 episodes of Raw, 11 episodes of SmackDown, the 1998 Royal Rumble covered way back in episode number 5 of this fine podcast, SummerSlam 2001, Payback 2017, and, just recently, Tables, Ladders, and Chairs in December of 2018. So we open the show with clips from the past several weeks highlighting the fact that Vince McMahon's world is starting to fall apart around him. Last week, The Undertaker sacrificed the big boss man on his symbol, then he lit the symbol on fire and allowed himself to be arrested. And then, last night on Sunday Night Heat, corporation members The Rock and Paul White started brawling with each other, and the show went off the air, with Paul White impressively lifting up the ring while The Rock was standing on it. And yes, you heard that correctly. Oh, and also on Sunday Night Heat, before everything went sour, Vince McMahon introduced us to a new nickname for Paul White. Give it up for the big show, Paul! Yeah. <laughs> Give it up, Ken. Very few men in this industry are in the same league with hey. the Big Show. The Big Show, huh? Pretty stupid nickname. I don't see that one sticking. But anyway, once those highlights conclude, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include... Blank sign. Yes, someone actually wrote that on a sign. I'm not taping Nitro. Bring back Jameson, Debra Debra, McMahon is a Nazi, Nice Beaver, Look Ma, We're White Trash, Snuff Videos for Sale, Ouch, 
Hey, X-Pac, I'll suck it. I'm wearing draws, spelled D-R-O-Z. China, my lady said it's okay. Will work for Vicodin. Offering free pearl necklaces. I love Jennifer Aniston. A sign which simply said Peter North, just felt like giving a shout-out to the legendary porn star, I guess. I'm black and angry. And finally, San Jose is Michael Cole country, so basically, never go to San Jose. So we officially begin the show with your WWF champion, The Rock, walking to the ring. Now, this opening segment ends up going for over 15 minutes, and I'm obviously not going to play the whole thing, but I will play The Rock's promo here because, obviously, it's the best part of the segment. So let's take a listen to what the People's Champ has to say. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Good, he's focusing on Austin. That's what we need. He better be. You have got exactly 13 unlucky days before The Rock does what he does best, and that's lay the smack down on your candy ass. Now, The Rock proposes two options. Option number one is that you find the nearest set of... Wait a minute. Listen to that chant, Michael. The Rock does not suck. Is that you find the nearest set of train tracks and lay your head down on him. And you wait for that old midnight rock bottom special to go rolling down the line. And then wham! That'll ease Stone Cold's troubled mind. Yeah! Option number two is Stone Cold. You come to WrestleMania. You go one on one with a great one. And The Rock will proceed to kick your monkey ass all over God's green earth. (laughs) What a war in two weeks at WrestleMania. That's the option I pick right there. Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania. The Rock will prove to you and the millions and millions of The Rock's fans exactly why The Rock is the chosen one. Why The Rock is the great one, and why, without a shadow of a doubt, The Rock is the best damn WWF champ there ever was. Stand up and applaud, Michael Cole. Now, for weeks, The Rock has said he cannot trust that 500-pound bag of monkey crap Paul White. Uh-oh, no, no, wait a minute now. Calm down, Rock! Last night on Heat... Austin champs here at San Jose! Concentrate on Austin! Last night on Heat, Stone Cold made it perfectly clear that Stone Cold and Paul White were together as one. So now The Rock says, Vince McMahon... The Rock has asked for answers to his questions you have not given. The Rock says, Vince, you bring your Rudy Pooh down the ass, down that ramp, and you sing that big song of monkey crap to The Rock if you smell. Hey, this ain't sing along with the champ. The Rock says it by himself. If you smell what The Rock... ...is cooking. So there you go. The Rock is showing quite a bit of defiance by openly calling out Vince McMahon. And sure enough, the chairman does indeed come down to the ring. He asks Rock who the hell he thinks he is, and then, amusingly, he says that his whole Rock persona is getting into his own head, so Vince reminds him who he is by calling him Dwayne. And I'm pretty sure that's our first ever reference to The Rock's real name, but obviously in the present day, he clearly prefers it. 
So Vince then says that the WWF title is not The Rock's, it's his. However, Vince then tries to put a positive spin on things by saying that Rock won't lose the belt at WrestleMania because he's not going to let that happen. Regarding the Big Show, Vince assures Rock that Paul White isn't as quick on the uptake as the two of them, but he'll get the job done. And then, as you might expect, this then brings out the aforementioned Big Show, who of course takes umbrage with what the chairman just said. However, a defiant Vince says that since Paul White is cashing his checks, he's going to get his money's worth, and then he slaps Big Show right in the face. Show then pushes Vince into a corner and tells him never to do it again, and Rock just watches on, not intervening at all. An angry Vince then says that he's going to make sure that The Rock and Paul White get along, because, right here tonight, they're going to be a tag team, and their opponents will be... Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mankind. Vince then raises both men's hands in the air, but are they actually on the same page? Well, I suppose we'll find out later tonight. Quite the lengthy opening segment, but it was a good one. Remember that Nitro went a full 73 minutes last week before kicking into its first match, so by comparison, this opening segment seemed to just fly right by. But now, we have our main event for tonight, and it's a damn good one, so stay tuned, folks. We then cut to the commentary table, where Michael Cole and Jerry the King Lawler recap what we just saw and run down some of tonight's matches, but while they're doing that... A couple stagehands with wooden boards come down to ringside. Lawler asks them what they're doing, but we cut to commercial before he can find out. And when we return, Lawler asks one of them what they're building, but he doesn't get an answer. And from there, we segue into our first match of the evening, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Championship, Champion Val Venus versus Challenger, the Road Dog Jesse James. In case you're wondering how this match came about, last night on Heat, the New Age Outlaws faced Val Venus and Hardcore Holly, and Val hit Road Dog with a German suplex right away and literally pinned him in 17 seconds. Road Dog, wanting revenge for that humiliation, challenged Val to a match tonight on Raw, but, uh, as I said, he just got pinned by Val in 17 seconds. So how the hell has he earned a title shot from that? incredibly bizarre booking. And also, after that match concluded, Billy Gunn challenged Hardcore Holly to a Hardcore title match tonight on Raw as well. So basically, the Road Dog, who has been feuding with Hardcore Holly and Al Snow over the Hardcore title, is now getting an Intercontinental title shot, while Billy Gunn, who has been feuding with Val Venus and Ken Shamrock over the Intercontinental title, is now getting a Hardcore title shot. I mean... What. The. Fuck. I guess they wanted the Outlaws to switch positions in their feuds for... some reason, so they used one 17-second match on Heat to completely change everything around less than two weeks before WrestleMania. Brilliant booking, as always, by Vince Russo. So anyway, let's get into tonight's Val Venus vs. Road Dog Intercontinental title match. Val controlled the majority of the match, but at one point, Road Dog managed to go on the offensive, and we got the debut of what comes to be one of his signature moves, the Pump Handle Slam, where he simulates banging his opponent up the ass before he hits the move. Sorry folks, I just report what I see. However, that devastating maneuver was only good for a two-count. And by the way, while this match is going on, we can also hear the piercing sounds of a buzzsaw as the carpenters at ringside continue to build whatever it is they're building. Vintage Vince Russo, we need constant distractions even during the match. So with that in mind, let's take a listen to the finish of Val Venus vs. Road Dog. I can't concentrate on the match with these moronic carpenters out here! Can you get out of... Get out of the way! Please, we're trying to see the match here. Intercontinental title on the line. Oh, oh just playing it foul with a DDT rolled into the cover. Here is it. There's two. Yes, that's right. 
Road Dog planted Val Venus with a DDT out of nowhere, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and the new WWF Intercontinental Champion, just a few weeks removed from his trip to rehab, the Road Dog Jesse James. And as you heard Michael Cole say in that clip, Billy Gunn does indeed come down to the ring after the match to congratulate his tag team partner, as Road Dog is now the proud owner of the second most prestigious title in the company. Good for him. Good for him. Surprisingly, though, they don't linger on this victory for very long, and we quickly cut to commercial just a few seconds after Road Dog's title victory. Still, though, a great moment for him, and as you heard in that clip, he got a huge pop for winning the belt, so I've got to assume this has to be one of the highlights of Road Dog's career. Someone be sure to ask him that at a 2019 Raw taping when he's still somehow palling around with Jeff Jarrett. But after the commercial, we cut backstage where your WWF champion, The Rock, is talking with the big show, Paul White. Rock says that he doesn't need the Big Show's help to beat both Stone Cold and Mankind tonight. And then, because this is 1999, Rock says to him, quote, You're looking at The Rock like you're part retarded. Well, I guess we've gotten in our nightly allotment there. But then, once again, we get another quick cutaway, and we go elsewhere backstage to some skinny guy with glasses named Lucas, who is apparently with WWF.com. Gotta be honest with you, I have zero recollection of a backstage reporter named Lucas, so I'm gonna go ahead and assume he doesn't last very long. So Lucas is tasked with interviewing your new WWF Intercontinental Champion, the Road Dog, but even the D-O-double-G has no time for him, as he simply says, quote, You're done with this interview, you jackass, and he shoves him out the door. Road Dog then says that because he has the second highest title in the company, he's coming for The Rock's WWF title next... So I guess we'll just ignore the fact that Rock easily jobbed him out cleanly two weeks ago on Raw. Interestingly, though, the man who says he wants the next shot at the Intercontinental title is Billy Gunn. Hmm, perhaps a little dissension amongst the New Age Outlaws? I guess we shall see. So we then go back inside the arena, where your WWF European champion Shane McMahon is walking to the ring, accompanied by his father, Vince McMahon. Fun fact... As I'm recording this episode here in 2019, Shane was recently a champion in the WWE as well, being one half of the SmackDown Tag Team Champions alongside The Miz until they lost the belts to the Usos at the recent Elimination Chamber pay-per-view. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So Shane grabs a microphone, and while he's talking, we can once again hear the loud whirring of the buzzsaws at ringside. I mean, can you imagine paying top dollar to sit in the front row at a Raw taping, and then when you get to the show, you're just getting deafened by a saw for half an hour? I dare say that I may want my money back. But anyway, let's take a listen to what Shane is up to tonight, and also be sure to listen for Shane's subtle jab at X-Pac's former ring name. So the European champion Shane McMahon set for a handicap match. I'll make this short and sweet. X-P-A-C... I know you're back there. I know you're listening. Taking you on at WrestleMania. <laughs> Defeating you will be as easy as one, two, three, kid. So just to show you how tough I am and show you how deserving I am to be the European champion, I'm not just taking on one individual. I'm taking on two right now. And they are the former WWF Tag Team Champions of the World Wrestling Federation. What? The Legion of Doom. Is he nuts? By himself? We're we're being joined by Mr. McMahon. I can't believe it. Can you believe that? The Legion of Doom. So, yes, just when we thought we'd be getting the return of the Legion of Doom for the first time in several months, it turns out that it's actually Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe dressed up as Hawk and Animal, complete with shoulder pads and face paint. Pretty amusing. Now, at this point, I assumed this was totally going to be a sham match where Patterson and Briscoe would essentially just lay down for Shane, but that surprisingly didn't turn out to be the case. This actually kind of ended up being a legitimate handicap match, with Shane hitting drop kicks, arm bars, and of course a Bronco Buster to each stooge. And the finish of the match came when Vince handed the European title to his son, and Shane then smacked both Patterson and Briscoe in the face with it. So I guess 
Even though the Stooges are fellow corporation members, Shane still saw fit to basically knock them the fuck out with belt shots. And from there, he pinned both of them at the same time, and that was enough to give the victory to Shane McMahon. Very strange that they basically portrayed this match as Shane beating two legitimate former wrestlers when he was at a one-on-two disadvantage, but, uh, sure, whatever. So after the match, Vince and Shane are celebrating together and walking up the ramp, but then a video cues up on the Titantron. McMahon. What? Do you know where I am? Hey, look at that shot. You see, the lights are on, but nobody's home yet. But she's coming home, isn't she, Vince? And when she does, guess who'll be waiting? Oh, my God. King, that's the... That's Mr. McMahon's house! Yeah, and you know who that is? King, it's it's the ministry. Yes, that's right. We get a shot of Vince's home on the Titantron, and sure enough, the entire Ministry of Darkness is outside of it, waiting for her to come home. And by the way, stellar commentary work from Michael Cole there when he asked Jerry Lawler, You know who that is? King, it's the ministry. Thanks for pointing that out, Cole. I wouldn't have known who those nine goth guys were otherwise. Stellar as always. But yes, once again, The Undertaker is going a bit too far and making things personal with the chairman of the WWF. But for me, the bigger question is, how is Taker even out of jail at this point after he assaulted a bunch of cops last week and got arrested? And now, just days later, he's trespassing too? I mean, this guy is just begging to be locked away for 10 to 15. And so, after a commercial break, we cut backstage where Vince is on the phone. He asked the person on the other line if they've seen anyone, so presumably he's talking to whomever is at his home right now. At this point, I'm sure you can probably guess, but hey, stay tuned, don't want to ruin the surprise. So from there, we go back into the arena where Jim Ross and Dr. Death Steve Williams are walking to the ring. And while they're doing that, we get a flashback to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat. And at this point, I must apologize in advance to Raw Attitude Podcast fan Philip Goad because he tweeted at me that he was disappointed when I included a Tiger Ali Singh promo in the previous episode of this show. But, well, Philip, unfortunately, I must include another Tiger promo here, but thankfully we barely hear anything from him in this clip. So last night on Heat, Tiger pulled a fan out of the audience and asked him to do a Jim Ross impersonation, so let's take a listen to that. You know the deal. I'm going to give you $500 cash for you two doing a great impersonation of Jim Ross. Go ahead. Well, it looks like Bentley's about to pick up here, ladies and oh, <laughs> Oh, man! I'd say it's a slobber knocker, but uh, I can't say my ass is too well. Now, perhaps some of you were able to guess that this quote-unquote fan was actually none other than Ed Ferrara, one of the head writers of the WWF. Ferrara infamously does this very same impersonation when he goes to WCW at the end of the year and starts calling himself Oklahoma, a clear mockery of Jim Ross. And in case you're wondering... Yes, he does all these same mannerisms here. He closes one of his eyes, he curls one side of his lips, and he frequently sticks his tongue out, as JR has been doing during his promos over the past few weeks. Very classy stuff. And if you recall last week on Raw, JR mocked the creative team for coming up with the dumb idea to put Dr. Death in a mask and Japanese martial arts outfit. Now, the conspiracy theorist in me would point to the fact that JR mocked the writers. And then one of the writers is on TV just days later making fun of him. Coincidence? You be the judge. However, if there's a silver lining to this segment, it's the fact that the real Jim Ross and Steve Williams come out from backstage, and Dr. Death proceeds to absolutely murder Ed Ferrara with a German suplex. I mean, this is even more brutal than a Brock Lesnar suplex. He drops Ferrara right on the back of his head and basically causes him to do a backward somersault. I would say that it was a terrible thing to witness, 
if not for the fact that he was doing it to a man who was mocking someone for having facial paralysis. So in this case, well done, Dr. Death. But anyway, this brings us back to Monday Night Raw, where Jim Ross and Dr. Death come to ringside, and we can now see what that team of carpenters had been building, a new commentary table specifically for Jim Ross, and it even has a sign that says JR is Raw on the front of it. And by the way, when Jim Ross sits down at his new announce table, the crowd gives him a massive JR chant. Because, why wouldn't they? He's awesome. And amusingly, JR even has his own headset, so we now have three men doing commentary, Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler, and Michael Cole. Pretty solid combo. So we then kick into our next match of the evening, and it is for the WWF Tag Team Championships. Champions Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, accompanied by Deborah, versus public enemy who bring one of their tables to the ring with them. So as a reminder, public enemy got assaulted by Bradshaw and Farouk on last week's episode of Heat, allegedly because they had bad attitudes, and as soon as they part the curtain this week, Michael Cole flat out says, quote, There's some rumors circulating around the locker room that WWF superstars don't want public enemy here. So yeah, they're really steering into that one, aren't they? And with that in mind, we then cut to a pre-taped promo where Kevin Kelly is with Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge. Public Enemy, how do you feel about the WWF Executive Committee granting you a tag team title opportunity here tonight? If they want to throw us a bone, that's great. But we don't want anything handed to us. Let's get it perfectly straight. The Public Enemy will earn its respect in the WWF. So there you have it. Public Enemy may have gotten off on the wrong foot, but they're here in the WWF to earn respect. Keep that in mind for just a few seconds from now. So the match only lasted for about two minutes, and stop me if you've heard this before, we got a strange finish. With Johnny Grunge working over Owen in the corner, referee Mike Kyoto got in Grunge's way and separated the two men because he was refusing to listen to Kyoto's orders. And that provided the perfect opportunity for Jeff Jarrett to sneak into the ring and nail Grunge right in the head with his guitar. Now, of course, I should make the very obvious point that this match was not billed as a no-disqualification match, and Jarrett clearly hit Grunge with the guitar directly in front of Mike Kyoto, but hey, it's the Attitude Era and no one cares, so why should we? From there, Owen hit a second rope splash, made the cover, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winners and still WWF Tag Team Champions, Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart. So okay, Public Enemy takes the loss, but like they said, now's the time for them to stick it out and earn the respect of the WWF locker room. So you probably know what I'm going to say now, don't you? Yes, this was the final Monday Night Raw match for Public Enemy. They'll be in the company for roughly two more weeks until they wrestle their final match on the April 10th episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, where they lose to the Hardy Boys via DQ. In case you need a reminder, Public Enemy debuted on the February 22nd episode of Raw, and they wrestled their final match on the show three weeks later. Quite the eventful run. You know it's not a good sign when your most memorable moment in a company is when you get the shit beaten out of you on an episode of Sunday Night Heat. And at this point, I would usually play my Wrestler Heaven soundbite, but I don't think Public Enemy deserves it for a three-week run. So farewell, Public Enemy. You made a lot of fans smile. I mean, not in the WWF, but you were somehow massively over in ECW, so I guess that counts for something. So we then cut backstage, where Vince and Shane McMahon are on the phone with someone who is identified as Sergeant Byrne, presumably a cop in Greenwich, Connecticut. Vince tells him that The Undertaker and the Ministry are threatening his family, but apparently the Sarge responds that he thinks the whole thing is just a publicity stunt. There's some good police work, huh? What's that? Nine guys are invading your home? <laughs> Sorry, pal. I don't get out of bed unless it's a minimum of 15. Click. Also, why the hell wouldn't the police department at least go to the house to check it out? It's not like they're up to their necks in homicide cases. It's fucking Greenwich. A speeding ticket would probably be the top story in the local paper. So I guess what I'm saying here is, if you want to commit crimes against rich people, Greenwich, Connecticut is probably a great place to start. And after a commercial break, we go to Vince and Shane once again. Their phone rings, and they think it's going to be the cops calling them back, but instead, it's apparently The Undertaker who taunts Vince by saying, It's almost 10 o'clock. Do you know where your family is? 
So apparently, Taker is a big fan of long-running public service announcements from the 1980s. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? And yes, of course, I am also obligated to play the Simpsons parody here as well. It's 11 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? I told you last night, no! Where is Bart, anyway? His dinner is getting all cold and eaten. So, after another commercial break, we see mankind sitting inside of what looks like a literal shark's mouth, and my research informs me that it's actually the tunnel the San Jose Sharks enter from when they have their home games in this arena. However, out of context, it looks like Foley is literally just sitting in an animal's mouth for no reason whatsoever. Okay then. But anyway, he tells Mr. Sacco that he's the filthiest sock he's ever seen, so he's going to give him a bath in Paul White's saliva. Gross. And we then go back to ringside, where we can now see that the black bar steel cage has been set up around the ring, and it is time for our next match, a hard times match pitting the big boss man against Midian. So apparently, Midian is the one member of the ministry who isn't currently stalking Vince McMahon's family 3,000 miles away. And by the way, for those of you scoring at home, the on-screen graphic tonight spells his name as M-I-D-I-A-N, so I guess they still haven't come up with a definitive spelling for that yet. Also, again, I have to ask, who do we root for here? The evil enforcer for Vince McMahon's corporation, or the member of the quasi-satanic cult which is currently stalking innocent people back in Connecticut? Quite the dilemma, for sure. So early on in this match, Michael Cole was trying to call the action, but because Jim Ross is sitting in front of him, he's apparently having a hard time seeing, so he says, quote, I got a big cowboy hat in my face so I can't see a damn thing. To which JR, without missing a beat, responds, You're gonna have a cowboy boot in your ass if you don't shut up. God damn it, I love JR. So the action only goes for about a minute until Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, Paul White, Test, and Ken Shamrock emerge from backstage. With the boss man in control of the match, he then proceeds to open the door of the cage, allowing his corporation comrades to enter the ring. And from there, they all take turns beating the shit out of Midian until Vince McMahon grabs a microphone. All right, Undertaker, I know you can see me. I know you can see what's going on. So what about it? Here's your eyes right here, Midian. I'm going to make sure... He won't ever be able to see out of those eyes again. I'm going to give the corporation the word to destroy him. If you don't, oh yeah, I'm going to have him to absolutely destroy him. You got an undertaker? Get away from my home, damn it. What's your answer? This man's going to be destroyed. Go ahead. Take him, Vince. The ministry is more than prepared to give their lives to the Lord of Darkness. You see, it's their mission. They live only to die for me. But then, there are those who are forced to die. Those who never know what it is that hits them. No pain, only pleasure. So, Vince... You do what you have to do for now. And I need to go do what I have to do. <laughs> so as you heard there, Vince told The Undertaker that he would have the corporation destroy Midian unless Taker left his family alone. But then, when Taker was shown on the Titantron back at Vince's home, he basically said that he didn't give a shit about Midian. And honestly probably the right call. The ministry then started walking toward the end of Vince's driveway, right as a car pulled up to it. However, before we could find out who was in it, we got that classic cliché of the camera feed cutting out, so I guess we'll have to wait a little bit longer. So after a commercial break, how do you follow up an incredibly serious situation like a home invasion and a potential assault? Well, obviously, you kick into a pre-taped segment when Sable is giving Jerry Lawler a tour of the Playboy Mansion. And Lawler, by the way, is dressed in his full king outfit, complete with crown, at the Playboy Mansion, so I feel confident in officially naming him as the world's biggest asshole. 
So Sable leads him around the premises, and we even get a cameo from Hugh Hefner himself, who says that all of Lawler's wishes will come true if he tosses a penny into the mansion's wishing well. And let's just say, I'm really hoping that Lawler didn't get his wish. I don't even know what it would be, I just get the sense it would probably be bad. And finally, Sable takes the king to the infamous grotto, where several bikini-clad women are hanging around in the pool. However, Lawler then proceeds to wear out his welcome by diving under the water and, uh, apparently grabbing the women's asses against their will. And of course, this is played for comedy because 1999 was a different time. But finally, a security guard tosses the king out of the mansion, which then segues us back into the arena where Lawler is now standing in the ring. And, of course, he then brings out Sable, who is wearing what I can best describe as a black leather thong bikini. She's really going for it tonight, I suppose. And speaking of which, the king informs us that Sable is here tonight to show her Playboy pictorial to the entire world. So if you paid money to buy the magazine already, clearly, you're a complete sucker because they're giving it away for free tonight. So Sable then directs our attention to the Titantron, and sure enough, they actually do show pictures from her Playboy pictorial, with the word Playboy covering up her naughty parts. To which Sable then tells the crowd that they're going to have to pay to see her, which I know is supposed to make her seem like more of a heel, but honestly, that is a completely legitimate statement to make. I mean, Playboy doesn't bring you in for a photo shoot just to have you give everything away for free. They want those magazine sales, son! Oh, and uh, for you listeners at home, 1999 was a time when things called magazines were actually still relevant. So anyway, Sable then gets interrupted by Tori, who stands at the top of the ramp wearing a red dress. And at this point, I'm sorry, but I have to play Tori's promo here because it is one of the most hilariously wooden promos I've ever heard. I mean, seriously, this is truly something to behold, so take a listen and see if you agree with me on this one. It's Crash and Sable's little party out here. Oh, Sable, they can see me for free. You know what, Sable? It took me a while, but last week you made things perfectly clear. You are just a woman, and there is nothing and I mean nothing about you that makes you a better person than me. I refuse to stand in your shadow for one moment longer. (laughs) And, unlike you, I'm willing to show everything I have to these people free of charge. But you know, I didn't just come here to talk the talk. I came here to strut the strut. Word has it on the street that you need an opponent for WrestleMania. I am willing, ready, and able. Do you want some? You see, honey, that's the difference between us. You, you only want some. But Sable, Sable wants it all. And I'll see you at WrestleMania. In fact, I'll even put you on the map. And then I'll drop the bomb on you. Whoa! Well, honey, that's all well and good. You just dropped the bomb on me then. But right now, I got a little bombshell of my own to drop on you. Honestly, when it comes to Mike's skills, Tori makes Sable look like Rick fucking Flair, and that's pretty hard to do. I mean, she literally sounds like a robot during this segment. I am willing, ready, and able. Do you want some? But yes, as you heard there, Sable accepts Tori's challenge for a match at WrestleMania, so the women's title will be defended for the first time since the Royal Rumble. And then, to put the capper on the segment, Tori says she's going to live up to her promise to show everything to the fans for free, so she strips out of her red dress to reveal a black bra and thong. Not to state the obvious, but I don't think that counts as showing everything, especially when we just saw that Sable is posing in Playboy. In fact, on top of that, Sable right now during this segment 
as I said, is already wearing a black thong bikini, so Tori pretty much shows the exact same amount of skin that Sable is showing, as if they needed to make her look even sillier at this point. So yeah, that Tori promo may literally be one of the worst ones I've ever heard. By all means, tweet me at RawAttitudePod and let me know if you think there's a worse one, but damn, that is... that is hard to beat. I know Scott Steiner had a bunch of crazy promos, but at least he was passionate about them. Tori just kind of sounded like she was trying to remember her lines while expressing no emotion whatsoever. I mean, just... yikes. So from there, we cut back to Vince McMahon's house, where a police officer has now pulled up to the scene. He knocks on the door but no one answers. He then takes his flashlight and, I guess, starts looking around for clues, but he doesn't find anything. And then, with the cops still searching around, we get an amusing cut to another Mean Street Posse vignette. And funny enough, with the Ministry apparently invading Mr. McMahon's home, I suppose we could say that Greenwich really does have some Mean Streets, if you think about it. I mean, hey, you know, it ain't all false advertising at this point, that's all I'm gonna say. Now, one thing I'll note about this Main Street Posse vignette is that we get an appearance from Willie Green, who has been mentioned several times in the previous vignettes by Rodney and Pete Gass. Interestingly, though, during this segment, Willie Green is shown completely in silhouette, so we can't see his face, so I guess the plan is for them to eventually do a reveal as to who he is? I'm actually not sure if we ever get to see him, but if we do, spoiler alert, I'm assuming he doesn't last very long. But anyway, this week the posse tells the tale of a bar fight they initiated, and also how Shane McMahon is so badass that Willie Green can punch him in the face, and Shane will say thank you for it. Truly a man's man for the ages. So after a commercial break, we go back inside the arena, where it is now time for our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship, Champion Hardcore Holly versus Challenger Billy Gunn. Now, one thing I have to note about these hardcore matches is, frankly, how repetitive the weapons tend to be. In this match, just like many before them, we got the usual suspects, chair, broomstick, trash can. I think the only one missing was the cookie sheet, otherwise we would have had hardcore match bingo. And interestingly, early on in the match, Jerry Lawler asks what would happen if someone would land on Jim Ross's announce table, since it's situated so close to the ring. And, well... Let's just say that the King may have inadvertently given away part of the match, because just a few minutes later, that very spot does indeed happen. So Hardcore Holly is arguing with referee Mike Kyoto after a very close two count, but then, when he turns back around to focus on Mr. Ass, Billy Gunn bench presses Holly and tosses him over the top rope, where Holly's legs basically just graze JR's announce table, and he pretty much lands back first right on the ground. That had to hurt, but I've got to say, it looked pretty fucking awesome. My goodness. And then, to add further insult to injury, Jim Ross starts yelling at Holly about how he broke his table, as though it was Holly's fault that Billy Gunn just chucked him over the top rope. Pretty funny stuff. So then, Billy Gunn rolled Holly back into the ring, where the steel chair was now sitting on the mat, and, well, let's pick it up from there. So there you have it, Billy Gunn is now your new WWF Hardcore Champion, so I think it's official, he and the Road Dog have essentially switched roles, like this was Freaky Friday or something. Also, by the way, I think this is the very first time that Billy's rocker dropper finishing move has been referred to as the Fame Asser, so there's a bit of history there, I suppose. And for the record, I still think that is in the running for the dumbest goddamn name for a wrestling move in history. Just awful. But in spite of that, congratulations to Mr. Ass on his hardcore title victory. 
And now that the Outlaws each possess singles titles, it certainly seems like they're trying to keep them out of the tag team ranks, so I guess we'll see how that plays out. And from there, we then cut backstage, where Vince McMahon is on the phone with the police station once again. When the officers tell him they couldn't find anyone at the house, Vince freaks out, but the Stooges try to assure him that it probably means that the Ministry of Darkness has left. But then, no sooner do they say that than, of all things, a television monitor sitting on the table next to them turns on by itself and cuts to footage of Vince's house, and, well, let's pick it up from there. They left. If they didn't see anything, those, those policemen are good. It's all right. You, you think that just because you didn't see anything, that they're no longer there? They're no longer there, Vince. There's nobody oh, there. Oh, God. Come on. Relax. Mr. Man, it's over. It can't Listen up, it's big man. Law enforcement's finest. I could see where we couldn't be found. It's not like we stand out or anything. Is it, Vince? Well, now that that annoying little interruption is done with, it's time to get back to business. I know what time she's expecting home, Vince. And I will be here to greet her. Maybe I could be that father figure she never had. Or maybe I could just torture her. But no worries. In due time, you will be witness to my madness. So, yes, as you heard there, The Undertaker is offering to be a father figure to someone in Vince's life, and the camera then slowly pans out to reveal a burning Undertaker symbol on Vince's lawn. And by the way, I love how they got so much crap for the quote-unquote crucifixion a few months ago that they're now doubling down and invoking a Ku Klux Klan cross-burning. I know, I know, it's an Undertaker symbol, not a cross, but still, it's in the ballpark, that's all I'm saying. But yes, this is obviously a very famous image from the Attitude Era, and I will admit that it does look pretty damn cool to see the flames from the symbol blowing in the wind. And frankly, if I were Vince, I'd probably be worried that a piece of that symbol would blow off and burn my house down, but suppose that's neither here nor there. Also, how shitty are the Greenwich police officers that they didn't see a big-ass Undertaker symbol right on Vince's front lawn? Not exactly top-notch detectives, it seems. Yeesh. And then, speaking of burning things, we then get footage from last week where Kane awesomely shot a fireball at Triple H, but Hunter ducked, and it nailed China right in the face. According to Michael Cole, China now has a partially burned retina, and Triple H versus Kane has been booked for WrestleMania 15. And with that in mind, Triple H emerges from backstage and grabs a microphone. He says that he's seen Kane backstage tonight, so he knows that he's here, which actually strikes me as a pretty funny statement. I just like the notion that Triple H sees Big Red Monster Kane just walking around like it's no big deal. I'd like to picture him holding one of those styrofoam cups of coffee, but maybe that's just me. So anyway, Triple H tells Kane to come to the ring because, quote, You're gonna burn, bitch, burn. And sure enough, being called a bitch apparently doesn't sit too well with Kane because he does indeed make his way through the curtain, where Hunter immediately starts brawling with him in the aisle. Both men then continue fighting with each other at the ringside area until... Vince McMahon heads out from backstage and stands in the ring. Apparently, Vince thinks that he can convince Kane to reason with his brother, The Undertaker, so let's pick it up from there. Close line, almost decapitated Triple H. Damn it. 
I don't ever ask much for you. I'm asking now. No, I'm demanding now. Come on, let's go. I need help. I need help now. The Undertaker's got my family. Damn it. I need help. Now, come on. Let's go. He wants Kane to him. talk to Let's go. To the Undertaker. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No. Oh, Kane, it's the Undertaker. Oh, my God. The Undertaker in Sid's clothing. Look at McMahon run away. The Undertaker has McMahon. It's just that simple. So as you heard there, Kane quickly dispatches Triple H, and Vince McMahon then orders him to come with him so he can help him try to reason with The Undertaker. But then, all of a sudden, Kane removes his mask to reveal that it was actually The Undertaker the entire time. Taker then grabs Vince by the lapel of his jacket and tells him, It's just that simple. Anytime. Anywhere. The lights then go out, and when they come back on... Vince is still in the ring, but The Undertaker is gone. I have to admit, this was pretty fucking awesome. I remember that Taker imitated Kane at some point around this time, but even I didn't realize it was Taker in the costume tonight until he entered the ring and was face-to-face with Vince. Gotta give a ton of credit to Taker there, because he imitated Kane's mannerisms perfectly, and you could tell that I wasn't the only one fooled, because when he took off the mask, the crowd completely went apeshit. I think pretty much everyone was fooled on this night. And no, it doesn't make sense that The Undertaker could be in San Jose and Greenwich at one time in the same night, but I suppose you could explain that away by saying that the footage in Greenwich was taped at a different time, or just chalk it up to Taker being a supernatural weirdo. Either way, it was fucking great. Also, I didn't realize that the symbol burning and The Undertaker's Kane impersonation happened on the exact same night, so kudos to the WWF for really going all out with the craziness to get this Ministry Corporation feud over. Great stuff. And honestly, that Undertaker reveal alone is probably worth the price of admission for tonight's show, so thumbs way up for that segment. But amazingly, we're not done yet, because it is now time for our main event of the evening, and what a doozy it is. WWF Champion The Rock and The Big Show Paul White versus Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mankind. And for those of you scoring at home, this is The Big Show's first real match on Monday Night Raw. He had that quote-unquote match against The Rock a few weeks ago, but it ended up just being an excuse for both guys to beat the crap out of Mankind, so I'm not sure if that one actually counts. But now, I guess we can say that he has finally arrived in the WWF. So first of all, Big props to the San Jose fans because they were really into this match. When Rock escaped a stunner attempt early in the match, you could hear them go, Aww. And more amusingly, when Mankind slammed Rock to the mat and set him up for his own version of the people's elbow, the crowd completely came unglued. They really wanted Foley to hit that elbow. But then, when Big Show kicked Mankind in the back to prevent it, the crowd responded with a massive chorus of boos. Just great stuff all around. I really love seeing these amped-up Attitude Era crowds. Always makes me nostalgic. I did have to note one strange move, though. At one point, the Big Show hit Mankind with a side Russian leg sweep, which just looks kind of weird coming from a 7-foot, 500-pound guy. When Adam Sal and I covered Halloween Havoc 1996 for Nitro Mania, Paul White was on that card, too, and during his match with Jeff Jarrett, he did a jumping headbutt to Jarrett's groin. So I guess what I'm saying is, someone needs to tell the Big Show that there are certain moves that don't look right when they're executed by someone his size. Although, with that being said, Big Show has gone on record that he used to be able to hit a moonsault, and goddammit, I really wish we could have seen that. Alas. Now, let me just say that this was a great 12-minute main event tag team match. Tons of fun, non-stop action, hot crowd, the whole nine yards. The one negative aspect was that we once again had a complete non-finish. Essentially, Big Show and Mankind left the ring and started brawling with each other, then Austin and Rock left the ring and started brawling with each other on another side of the ring. Amusingly, Austin actually put Rock on Jim Ross's smaller announce table, which immediately caused it to collapse. And then, just a few moments later, Austin put Rock on one of the regular announce tables, climbed to the barricade, and hit Rock with an elbow, which then collapsed that table as well. And from there, they just played Austin's music. So, uh, I 
guess we can assume it was a double countout, maybe? This is really becoming a recurring trend with these Attitude Era main events lately. We don't need an ending that would just be unnecessary. Go off the air without anything being decided, bro. One thing that Michael Cole notes as the show ends, however, is that the big show is supposed to be protecting The Rock, but instead, he's too preoccupied with mankind. So once again, it looks like we're furthering the dissension between Rock and Paul White, as if Vince McMahon needed more things to worry about. But yes, that was our main event. But of course, we're not done just yet. So on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw did a ridiculous 6.46 rating, its highest of all time, easily topping Nitro's 4.4. This week, Raw dropped down a bit further to a still-ridiculous 5.81, but Nitro could still only manage a 4.29, which had to be a bit deflating from them, since Night's show was airing the night after their uncensored pay-per-view. I won't dive too much into uncensored, but there were a few noteworthy moments— Booker T defeated Scott Steiner to win the World Television Championship, and Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Kurt Hennig and Barry Windham to win the WCW Tag Team titles. And then, there was the main event. WCW World Heavyweight Champion Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in a First Blood Barbed Wire Steel Cage match. Now remember, I said this is a First Blood match, and why do I bring that up? Well, because Ric Flair actually ended up bleeding first in the match, and it was completely ignored by referee Charles Robinson. Instead, Flair won the match when he put Hogan into the figure four, and Robinson counted Hogan's shoulders down for three. So yes, Ric Flair just won the world title by pinfall in a first blood match. Now, how did this company go out of business again? I'm not sure. Yikes. But anyway, that brings us to Nitro, and here's what you could have been watching instead of Raw over on the TNT network. Meng defeated Jerry Flynn, Rick Steiner defeated Brian Adams, Rey Mysterio defeated Billy Kidman to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship in what is, not surprisingly, a really great match. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated the -the what-the-fuck team of Hugh Morris and the Barbarian to retain their tag team titles. Stevie Ray defeated Horace... Disco Inferno defeated Conan. Booker T defeated Chris Jericho by disqualification to retain his world television title. And, in your main event, Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash versus Goldberg and Ric Flair went to a no contest. Now I will say, by most accounts I've read, this show got pretty good reviews at the time. Although, granted, since last week's episode featured the infamous first hour with no wrestling whatsoever, there was probably nowhere to go but up. But as you know, this is typically the point of the show where I read an excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds, but there's actually no excerpt about this week's Nitro. I guess even they couldn't find a negative thing to say about it. Now, granted, they do cover the stupidity of the Hogan-Flair match at Uncensored, but tonight's Nitro emerges completely unscathed. So perhaps this is a sign that Kevin Nash has learned from his booking mistakes, and we can expect nothing but quality shows from here on out, huh? Yeah, right? Uh, stay tuned. But on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. So, would I recommend that you watch this episode? I have to say, I think I would. There's enough good stuff here that definitely makes it worth watching, particularly if you just turn on that last half hour with the symbol burning, the Undertaker dressed as Kane, and the really fun main event. It's also pretty cool to watch Road Dog and Billy Gunn win singles titles on the same night, even though they have, for some reason, completely switched roles, with Road Dog taking the Intercontinental title and Billy Gunn taking the Hardcore title. And in addition to that, we got the announced table craziness with Jim Ross, and of course, what may be the worst promo in the history of wrestling, courtesy of Tori. 
I mean, hey, at least that part's kind of enjoyable from a what-the-hell-am-I-watching perspective, right? So all in all, once again, I will indeed give Monday Night Raw a thumbs up. And next week, I'll be covering the go-home episode of Raw before WrestleMania 15. And, well, let's just say that I already know one thing that happens on that show, but I'm hoping there'll be some more good stuff there, too. So definitely be sure to tune in for that. And now, before we wrap up, here are some notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. Bret Hart was backstage at Nitro this week, and the reason he wasn't put on TV was because... They apparently didn't have anything for him. On a three-hour show, that featured a Ming Jerry Flynn match. Somehow, I feel like they could have made room for him. And speaking of guys who weren't on Nitro, Steve Mongo McMichael was booked, but he pulled a no-show. And, unfortunately for you Mongo fans out there, we will actually never see him on Nitro ever again. Alas. On the other hand, though, both Bobby the Brain Heenan and Larry Zbysko each signed new three-year contracts with WCW, but, uh, spoiler alert, three years is awfully optimistic. And on the note of long-term contracts, it's believed that WCW will be offering one to Chris Jericho very soon, but rumors are that he's still leaning toward jumping to AEW. Uh, I mean, the, the WWF. Sorry, I meant the WWF. And in more WWF news, they are indeed actively trying to push Michael Cole as the new lead announcer on Raw, despite Jim Ross's return. However, before they decided on Cole as the new guy, they had actually made an offer to Michael Landsberg, the host of the TSN show Off the Record. Apparently there was interest from Landsberg, but TSN told him he would have to leave Off the Record, so he decided to stay where he was. In retrospect, I wonder if he regrets that decision, or if he was happy staying on Canadian television for all those years instead. Someone be sure to ask him that. And finally, in a bit of an amusing story, a CD called Slammin' Wrestling Hits was released this week and sold 60,000 units until it was immediately pulled out of stores. The reason why it was pulled out? The WWF sued the record label because the CD was composed of nothing but cheap ripoffs of WWF entrance themes. And by cheap ripoffs, I mean they quite literally sound like they could have been on the soundtrack of a late 1980s Nintendo wrestling game. And you know what? I'm actually going to play some of them for you at the end of this podcast here so you can get a good feel for what we're dealing with. But let's just say that Jim Johnston certainly had a good legal case for himself here. And so, on that note... I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so as promised, I will now leave you with a clip of some of those tracks from the Slammin' Wrestling Hits CD, so you can judge for yourself as to whether or not they were a bit too close to the original WWF entrance themes. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time.